Mosey Nation, welcome to part two of the podcast I did with Tanner Chittister. On this podcast, we'll talk about how to acquire customers profitably and the formula and mindset and models that I use to do that in every business that I have encountered to date. I hope they serve you as much as they have served me. If you can actually just narrow it down instead of making it the faceless, like everyone's opinion, but like, who's that one person whose opinion you care about? Then it's asking a more pointed question, which is like, is my opinion of what my father thinks of me more valuable than, than what I think of me? Welcome to the game where we talk about how to get more customers, how to make more per customer, and how to keep them longer, and the many failures and lessons we have learned along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Your business is the thing that impresses me the most is the fact of how much scale you've had with essentially, and I may be wrong, but in your portfolio, I still believe you don't run hardly any ads. Is that, that's accurate, right? Overall? That is accurate. Well, Um, one of the companies... One of the companies runs a lot of ads, not Jim Walsh. Different companies runs a lot of ads. One, one, one of six. So to me, that's the most impressive. And the reason is I thought my profit margins were high. And then I heard yours and I go, well, shit, I, I guess if I didn't run ads, they'd be that high too. So <laughs> but then what impresses me further is the amount of scale. So when you're starting these businesses, did you just figure out a formula and then you make sure these businesses fit that formula? Or did it just so happen that you'd start a business and you're like, how can we get these leads without paying for them? I think it's both those thought processes, honestly. Now, in terms of the check boxes for a business, I have five that I look at. So it's, it's my little moniker. It's unique, expensive, sticky air and managed with a person of integrity who has a long-term mindset. So those are the five things. So I'll unpack it real quick. So unique is like, is there something that we have a unique thing that, that only we can do that we have a unique... And it might not even be the thing that's different, but do we have a unique story that can still differentiate us? Like for me and Jim once, there's nobody who's had as many gyms as I have or who did two years of turnarounds. That's a unique angle that I know that I'm better at, right? Um, expensive is going to be just a function of pricing. And it's more than it is expensive in an absolute terms. It's more, what is the gross profit of the business, right? Which has a function to do with the second thing, unique, expensive, sticky air. And the air is the, sorry, the fourth thing is basically no marginal cost. How can I, how can I sell something that costs almost nothing, right? So that I don't want to have 80% or 90% margins. I want to have 97 and a half percent gross margins. And the difference between a 90% gross margin business and a 95% gross margin business is twice. That's what everyone fucks up. A 95% gross margin business is twice as profitable as a 90% gross margin business because it means I can, I would have to sell twice as many units, right? Or for each increment of cost, I can sell two versus one. And that is why it's twice. It's not 5%, right? And everyone messes that up. So unique, expensive, sticky is how can I make it recurring and have some sort of habit forming component to it? And either it's recurring because of the model or because of how good the product is. So how can I have some element of recurring that's going to come into it, right? So unique, expensive, sticky air, those are the four. And then managed by someone who has integrity, who has a long-term perspective. And that, that way, they'll make the right calls at the right time and not sh- sacrifice short-term for a quick pop. And so that's in terms of like the businesses that I'm looking at. In terms of the question about how do we have such low ad spend related to our revenue? So this, is, this has been evolved over time, having spoken with all the guys I know who are worth $250 million and up. What was interesting to me is that the vast majority of them want to do one-time inputs with compounding returns. And so most people do the opposite. They do things that they have, like spending money on advertising. For example, you have to come up with a whole campaign, you have to write all the copy, you have to put money in it, and then it stops working eventually, right? Then you have to do it again, and it stops working eventually. Now contrast that with, I'm going to write a book, and, it's, and it has to be so good that on its own, if I give it to 10 people, 
that though, that more than 10 people will get it as a result of those first 10 people. So then a let, so each of those 10 people sends it to two people and those people send it to two people. And so right now this book was almost a, a, a test for me of that concept, giving the book in the course. And that has actually worked. So I made one post on Instagram and that was my promotion. I've run no ads for this book and it's selling a thousand copies a day. It's nuts, right? I mean, thousand copies, you can multiply the math. Like it's a lot, right? But there's no advertising, none. And so to round that point off, if you look at the six ways of getting customers, right? So you have paid ads, you have earned media, which is the followers that we all have, right? We have owned media, which is all the people who've given us permission to contact them. So all of our, all of our, the followers in their inboxes, the DMs, et cetera, your phone contact, CRM. And then you've got manual outbound. I know you know this. I'm just saying this for everyone else. Manual outbound, which is the actual cold DM. So same concept, but we're doing it to on a one-on-one basis to people who haven't given us permission. We have affiliates. So people already have the pool of customers that we have that we can partner with and make a full integration to their business so that they can keep sending us new clients. And then finally, you have word of mouth and referrals, right? Now, if I were to ask the audience, right? Which of those is quadratic compared to which of those is linear? Which of the six is which? They might think for a second. Because we're only talking and I can't see the comments, I will answer the question, right? Referrals, word of mouth, is the only one that's quadratic. So if I put a dollar in advertising and I get $10 back, then I, get, then I put $100 and I get $1,000 back. It is linear in the relationship, right? It's, it's a straight line. Same thing with outbound. If I do 100 calls versus 200 calls versus 1,000 calls, I have the same, same response rate, more or less law of large numbers. With referrals, if we make the product good enough, then I can give it to one person, and that person gives it to two, two give it to four, four give it to eight, and then it multiplies. It's quadratic, right? And so when I look at the people who make the most money, they spend all of their time or a disproportionate amount of their time truly getting product market fit. And a lot of people talk about product market fit, but they don't actually ever achieve it. They get... their their idea of product market fit is that people are buying it. That is not the way that product market fit is actually determined. Product market fit is actually determined based on the fact that these customers stay and continue to pay and want to buy more. That's how you find product market fit. And so the idea is we should be promoting just enough to keep fixing the product until the product itself does enough selling for us that it becomes a virtuous cycle. But most people just learn how to make that first dollar and then try and max out. And then they're really disappointed by the fact that they're not making as much money or profit as they'd like to make, and then also feel shitty about things. And so when I look at that, if I'm trying to build something that has compounding returns, it's like, how can I take a one-time effort and really go in on the product? I know enough about promotion now to make sure that I can get the, the first sales through. And then keep tweaking this until eventually it is good enough that I get an outsized return on any effort I do. And then at that point, I'll turn the other ones on. Because then making the, the advertising profitable is, is basically inevitable because for every customer I'm getting, I'm getting one or two more customers. Yeah, the biggest lessons I've learned from you recently is, I mean, simply I've seen that. So I'm like, what, what can I do different to where I don't have to market so hard? Because I, I can market, but, but I cannot outbeat that performance with marketing. And then also it's wrapping my head around, okay, maybe these offers, what do I have to do to change these offers? What new offer would I need to hit that criteria? And because I have a lot of experience, I, I think it's easier for me to wrap my head around that. But that to me is like, what I've seen is it's like, he's doing stuff in a way where it's like almost funny, where it's like, we don't really have to do anything to sell this. The cold calling, especially I think is absolutely ridiculous right? That you can call someone the offer is so good. You're just like, yeah, like, we'll just kind of do it with you. Whatever. If it doesn't work, <laughs> pay us. And they're like, all right, like we'll do it. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. 
One of the questions I wanted to ask is, you know, in the book, and, and I understand this, but you said, if your company isn't growing, it's dying. And I think some people don't understand that. They, they think like, well, my company's here. Like, it's not. Can you, can you give maybe an example? Because you said it really black and white in the book that people can understand what you mean by that statement. So if you look at the, like the marketplace in general, the marketplace is growing at 10% a year, right? And so if you are not growing by 10% a year, relative to the market, you are shrinking. And so that means that you are dying. And I use grow or die as a very polarizing term because it's memorable, right? But fundamentally, most businesses, if they are not adapting or innovating, will get outpaced by the marketplace and then eventually vanish into nothingness. And so the idea is that we must continually grow and must continually innovate to keep our product sharp and, and top of the game. And do you, have you ever had you know, a time in your business where, I, I, I finally saw it this year, where I felt like this was the first year where I was like, man, I, I got to start changing or we're not going to keep going up. Did, have you had that happen in your business at all? Well, yeah, I got kicked in the nuts during COVID because I served gyms. But uh. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know you. I didn't know you well enough then. But I remember I, I said a distinct prayer and I was like, thank you, Lord. I'm not Alex Ramosi during this. Time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you know what I mean? I, I've definitely, you know, I've definitely experienced that. In the book, you know, your dad questions whether what you were doing uh, were legal, you know, <laughs> after one of the pictures from your events. So you didn't initially have the support from your family. What, what would you say to people who are watching and are kind of in that same boat? And I see this a lot with beginners to, to how to deal with that because it's, I think it's easy to maybe say now, but I know when I started, I don't know how you felt, but I, I got very close to quitting a few times, which in retrospect is crazy, but it, you know, getting kicked in the nuts over and over is tough. How did you deal with it or how did you deal with it? <laughs> Such a visual, just getting kicked in the nuts over and over again. Um, Especially you. <laughs> So I'll briefly share the, the story that got me, got me started because I think it might have relevance because for me, the hardest decision was actually quitting my job. So that was the hardest decision I had to make because I was actually a very good student. I graduated from Vanderbilt, Magnum Laude in three years and I got a good job as a management consultant and I got paid good money. And so I had, I pretty much had done everything that I was told to do up to that point. I was president of a fraternity. I, you know, I mean, I was editor of the things like I, I did all that stuff. Right. And so I'd followed everyone's path and I was miserable. And so I remember I was looking out of my balcony because I owned a condo in a high rise. Um, I was 22 and I, all I could think about was how I just didn't want to be alive. And so it was, and that's why I say like a lot of my decisions have been in the face of my mortality because it's like apparently the only thing they get me to move. And so, and so when I was faced with the fact that like, I was like, if I'm driving tomorrow, I was like, I could just accidentally go in the other lane and like, it would be all right. Like no one would, no one would know it'd be fine. And I wouldn't wake up and it would, it would be over. Right. And so the thing is, is like this kind of passive ideation was something that like occupied a lot of my time. And so I was like, it got to the point where I was in so much pain of just living this existence that I didn't want to live that I was like, well, if at least if I start a business, it'll be doing something that I like and I won't like, I won't be thinking about fucking killing myself every day. And so that was really, that was kind of like, it was when I was faced with my mortality of like, well, I've got the judgment of my parents. I was like, or I could die. And I was like, well, I guess judgment of parents is better than death. And so that was how like straight up, that was how I made the decision. But then even when I did make the decision, I still had the same level of like fear of failure and judgment. And I told you so. And I've been right all along and you should have listened to me that I never wanted to hear. And so when I started the business, it was just that fear that I had so much anxiety every hour of every day, which is why I didn't take a vacation until December of 2019. 
Hey guys, real quick, if you're new to the podcast, I have a book on Amazon called $100 million offers that over 8,000 five-star reviews. It has almost a perfect score. You can get it for 99 cents on Kindle. The reason I bring it up is that I put over a thousand hours into writing that book and it's my biggest gift to our community. So it's my very shameless way of trying to get you to like me more and ultimately make more dollars so that later on in your business career, I can potentially partner with you. So that's my give, go check it out, Amazon and back to the show. Yeah, I, I can I can relate to a lot of that. And I remember distinctly after, you know, finishing football, that was my whole life. I just want to play in the league. I mean, I was, I was in engineering class, I had a year left and I was like, oh, I can't, this can, this just is not going to work. And, and it really hit me because I was like my, I was looking at that for the rest of my life. So I can hundred percent relate to that. I didn't, I didn't even know that part about your, uh, your story that young. And for, to answer the question for the people who are struggling with like their parents stuff or their sister or whoever that person is, like, I think the quick, cause like a lot of people are like, I'm so afraid of what people think, but if you really narrow it down, there's only like two or three people whose opinions you actually care about. And maybe it's just one. And so then if you can actually just narrow it down instead of making it the faceless, like everyone's opinion, but like, who's that one person whose opinion you care about? Then it's asking a more pointed question, which is like, is my opinion of what my father thinks of me more valuable than, than what I think of me? Yeah. And I think if you can answer that question, and hopefully it's like, I think what I think is more important Then you can take that first step. I mean, I remember my dad called me and this is after we had probably taken home 20 million at this point. You know what I mean? This is a few years ago. And he was like, Hey, you might want to hear this. And I was like, what? I like stepped out from dinner. I was like, what? He was like, you ready? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I'm sorry. First time he's ever apologized. And I was like, for what? <laughs> he was like, you know, for everything. He was like, you were right. He's like, but in my defense, if it had been in my time, I would have been right. Are you saying sorry, dad? <laughs> right. But I remember when, when he said that to me though, that my, my response was, I was like, you rooting for me now when literally everyone else in the world has already recognized that I'm good at this means nothing. And I was like, if I cared about your opinion, I would have never quit to begin with. And I was like, you know, when people can stand on stage and the first thing they say is, Hey mom and dad, thanks so much for always being there and believing me. I was like, I'm not going to fucking say that. Cause you weren't. And I was like, so I'm glad that that's apology made you feel better. I was like, but your opinion stopped mattering to me a long time. And so that was the conversation that I had with my father. Hopefully it was, you know, less targeted than that for everyone here. But I guess, you know, what conversation do you want to have? And if you never quit, then you won't fail. And that is like, that's the prerequisite of entrepreneurship. If you do not quit, you won't fail. And so they can never say, I told you so until the moment that you give up. That just resonates with me so much. Like that's the number one thing. Like I say that all the time. I'm like, as long as you don't quit and you don't have a mental disability, seriously, and you can make decisions like that didn't work, that didn't work. Don't do that again. You eventually will hit success. It's just time. That's it. It's just time. Do you think you would have made it without Layla? So I had six gyms before I met Layla. You know what I mean? So I think I think I had I had a reasonable level of of competence, but I wouldn't have made it as big or it would have taken me much longer. Yeah. I mean, was it easier with her? Is is Oh my God, yeah. I mean, everything blew up when I met Layla. And that's because I always had half the equation, right? I didn't have the other half. And so half the equation is marketing and sales, right? And she had product operations fulfillment. And so that was, once I had that piece 
because I could always outsell my problems, but I just couldn't, I couldn't keep people. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't get that part yet, which is, which might be funny for people listening to this compared to how I just talked about the first half of this talk. Right. But like, it was, it's because I've learned that lesson, right. I've learned how much more powerful it is to not have to how, tell you it's, it's so much more profitable to make the products exceptional and then get people to buy over and over and over again. You make so much more money. And so like, Although I came up from the marketing and sales perspective, I would no longer consider myself that. I'm just much more of a business person now. At least I consider myself that way. But having Layla as early as I did, I kind of got to leapfrog a lot of the pain I otherwise would have had to figure out the hard way. It was just like, you take all that stuff because I don't like dealing with that. And she was like, okay. And then she crushed it. And so by doing that, it just blew up. And then in retrospect, I was like, oh, that was really important. I need to make sure that that's always there. And so now when we create businesses, it's like, front end, back end, shared ops. And we always have all three with everything that we do. And then that way they work on the first try. Let me ask you this. I mean, a lot of people, I feel like I got a good concept of what you do now, but everyone's always like, what's a day in the life look like, Alex? What do you do? So what, what does that kind of look like uh, now that, you know, you've stepped out of most things and you're basically just being an owner? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like not a lot. <laughs> so like today I was reading this book, um, it's okay. It's not great. It's okay. You know, I, I was writing these books. I still have book two and book three that are written. I'm just going through the editing processes now for those. The only things that are set on my schedule is that I meet with the CEOs of the acquisition.com companies. So I meet with those guys once every week or every other week. And that's, that's like, that's the majority of that's, that's like my, those are my have to do's and all the, and everything else right now, my focus right now is promoting the book. You know, I wrote it. So I figure I should promote it a little bit. So Saturdays and Sundays, there's nothing. I usually have one or two days of the week that are completely blank. Monday afternoons is when I do the meeting. So that was a nice tweak if you, if you, uh, for everyone else here. So number one heart attack time in the, in the US is first thing Monday morning. And so a mentor of mine sold his company for 3.4 billion. He did heart rate variability on all of his executives and he found out they were most stressed in the morning. So he just pushed all the meetings back until afternoon and everyone was okay. And so I can tell you, it, it changes the feeling of everything. It's weird. It's so weird. I just don't work Monday mornings. And like my first meetings at like noon. That's so interesting. That's the first time I've heard that. I might have to try that. It's so interesting. Dude, it's weird. It's tripping. Like it's, you're like, I feel like I'm cheating. Like I, I'm not stressed right now. And so all of a sudden no one else is stressed either. And then it eliminates this false urgency you feel. Cause it's like, first thing I got to do stuff on Monday morning. It's like, no, you don't like, cause us deciding now versus four hours from now is going to change nothing. But like the stress levels go way down. So my Monday afternoon, it's been like three or four hours in meetings. And, and then I have Thursday mornings. I do a little bit. That's it. Final two questions, Alex. What, what's next for you? What's next for you? You got the portfolio companies. Are you just going to keep adding to it? What are you going to do next? Yeah, it's all, that's, that's hundred percent. My focus it was like, how can I play something? So I spent probably two years trying to think about what the next thing was going to be. I know you and I have had offline conversations about this, but like I have no, I really have no more marginal utility for money. So money only solves money problems. And once you've solved all the money problems that exist in your life, there's not a lot more that money can do. And I recently did my will and my estate planner updated it. And like, I don't have kids and all the stuff that I have, I'm going to be donating anyway when I die. So like, there's really no reason for me to like, I, for me, the idea of legacy is kind of silly because in a hundred generations, my gene pool would be done even if I did have kids. And if I did have kids, I probably wouldn't give them the money because I think it ruins them, which means that I can't give the money to anyone anyways. And even if I did in a hundred generations, someone's going to remember who I was to begin with. So it doesn't really matter. So 
all that to say, I had to think like, what are, what is my ideal day look like? And then how can I create a company that fits that? And that was, that was, it was like a two year, I have, I still have a note on my phone that has like 11 different big business ideas of what I was going to do next. And then piece by piece, I started crossing them out until I was like, the acquisition.com one just kept feeling right. It kept coming back to like, I would have moments where I was like, this one might be cooler, but I would always come back to that one. And so that's why, um, that's why I think I'll be able to win with it because I, I keep coming back to it. And I think that I'll be able to do it for a very long time. And so if I do it for a very long time, then I think it'll grow much bigger than anything else I've done. So for everyone who's listening, we're acquiring minority positions in, in, in education or training-based companies that are really 5 million plus, like 5 to 15-ish. The biggest company in the portfolio is doing 35. Smallest company is doing 8 million. So just for like context, but that's, that's kind of the range. But 5 million plus is kind of the, kind of at least where we kind of draw the line. But yeah, so we're looking at those companies and saying, hey, we've already done this like a zillion times now. So, you know, helping someone get to 30 million or 50 million or whatever, like we understand how to do it. Yeah, it doesn't, isn't too difficult for you. So guys, Alex, thank you so much, man. Guys, make sure you go to Amazon, get his book. And then Alex, when do your next books drop? <laughs> you can't, you can't um, that stuff up. <laughs> the next um the next book will drop when i think it's good enough that when people read it they'll tell their friends fair enough fair so enough. you know i think i mean it's it's done now i have a whole rewrite in my head though i've rewritten the second one three times now so i'll probably end up rewriting it two more times so i'll probably rewrite it one more time when you're writing it alex are you doing pretty much the heavy work as well. Like you're not getting a lot of help. I do everything. That's, that's, yeah, I do everything. That's incredible. Yeah. Cause it's a lot of work. Had, uh, People who are watching this, these, it's not easy to write a book by the way. So <laughs> incredible. And a good book's even harder. You know yeah. I mean? yeah. <laughs> it has to be so simple and so digestible that, cause like when I'm reading, cause I've read this book a zillion times. Cause every time I edit it, I basically read it. It's like, where is it that my eyes I get, I gloss over, like, where is it where I lose interest or where is it that it's like chunky and it's like, then I have to rewrite it and massage it. And how can I break this idea or give it a different example? Um, and I think what happened, the reason I like the writing stuff so much is because I get better. You mean like I get better at explaining the concept. So like my depth of understanding, my perspective on, on expertise is how deeply you understand the basics. I don't really think that there's a lot of advanced stuff in business. I think it's how deeply do you understand like people use the term value, right? For how long have you heard people say value and no one had a fucking equation for it? People were like, provide more value. I'm like, what does that mean? Right? I mean, <laughs> it's true. Like even that, that equation, if you took that whole book and you gave me those two pages, that was what I got out of the book. That was worth the read for me. Cause I was sitting there going, so if I just do one of these four things, then that makes it better. And then it's easier to sell. And as soon as you start implementing it, or I have at least already, and so that's what's interesting about that is that, that it ends up creating scalable enterprise, right? Because like, you know how to build sales teams. I know how to build sales teams, right? But what really scales sales more easily rather than having absolutely savage salespeople, and that's very important and good and amazing sales training, is just giving an offer that would be so easy to sell. And then all of a sudden, you don't have to take nearly as much time to ramp up. You don't have as much cost in sales that are not closed by a new closer when you put them on the, on the roster. Like There's all these other costs that are mitigated when you have a much better offer. And people are more convicted about it because they believe uh, in what they're selling. Yeah, 100%. I've, I've already seen that across the board. Well, dude, everyone, please get his book. Thanks so much for your time, man. I know you're just so busy today. You have <laughs> just, more time left on the schedule. 
guys, be on the lookout. I think Alex is doing 10 books. 10 books? Yeah. yeah. He's going to be writing 10, 10 books. 10 courses. Uh, absolute killer read. I loved it. That's part of why I wanted to do this. And he had a birthday yesterday, so spam his walls. Make sure to bother him. <laughs> I think, I think he's, in his tw- he's 22 or something today, so just make sure to give him some birthday love. All right, guys. All right, guys. I'm going to turn off the live stream. Till next time. See ya. See you guys. Thank you.